Hello and welcome to Beth Takoon and this special Spiritual Seasons teaching on Yom Kippur. So I'm separately posting a teaching on the Parsha of the week, Ha'azinu, for those interested. In that teaching, we dive into how it is that music can so transport us. And we find some wonderful hidden layers in the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. But for this teaching, we focus now on this pinnacle of the yearly calendar, this especially holy day of Yom Kippur. So let's start by briefly dipping into the Torah reading for Yom Kippur and the basic commandments given for the day in some of the traditions uh, of Yom Kippur. So the associated Torah reading is Leviticus 16, the first chapter of Parsha Akare Mot, after the death. The chapter details the high priest's Yom Kippur service, right? All these details about how the high priest does Yom Kippur. And it begins... The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And so this beginning context is meaningful. The context is death, separation. Sin leads to separation from God, but he has provided a means of being reconnected, and and connection is life. And so we can say he's provided a way of coming back to life. The chapter goes on to lay out, as I said, very... Uh, much detail, how the high priest is to approach the Lord through a very careful and holy process so that he won't die. The high priest himself has to be atoned for, right? This one who's doing this ceremony on behalf of the people, first he himself has to be covered. And, um, And all the Levites and the sanctuary itself, which has incurred some defilement over the year, and all the people, finally. And so, not only can you not just approach God willy-nilly, however you want, but everything has to be done, everything has to be painstakingly cleansed before it can appear before the Holy God. Well, let's pause right here and make a quick side point. This is a holy moment in the calendar. And though we maintain a sense of joy within all the Moedim, this is not a moment for the common, and for idle chatter, which is such a temptation every time we gather together. And I'm speaking to myself here first. I have also this this temptation that I succumb to often of this idle chatter when we get together, and um, even some silliness sometimes. But Yom Kippur is special. Um, Of all the days in the year, this is the one where we focus most on the the seriousness of the day. And so we know that the earthly high priest pictures Yeshua as our heavenly high priest, right? Earthly high priest, he's picturing Yeshua, heavenly high priest. If Yeshua is in us and we are in him, then there is some sense that we are entering into the heavenly holy of holies with him on Yom Kippur. And we take that very seriously, with hearts and minds prepared for the day and with the seriousness of the moment at the forefront of our minds. It certainly is a joyful day because at the end, the result is atonement. But as the high priest approaches God, picture this happening with the people watching maybe in an outer courtyard, watching what's going on in that inner courtyard. And when he disappears into that temple proper That's a grave and sober moment for the people. And, you know, they must just be bowing their heads in in prayer for him at that moment because God is giving a very rigorous ceremony so that 
he can approach God without dying, right? There's a risk of death involved. And so, and you know, there's that tradition that the, the chain was attached to his ankle just in case he did die and they had to pull him out. Uh, I, do, I don't know if that's true or not, but there's that story anyway. Well, let's continue now with a summary of the commandments for the day by reading the Torah's own summary that comes after its detailed description of the high priest service. So listen for, one, the purpose of the day, and two, the commandments in these verses. So in Leviticus 16, starting in verse 29, it says, And it shall be a statute to you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work. Or some translations say, you shall afflict your souls and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. This is something that the sojourner is also honoring. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves or afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest, right, the high priest here, um, in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for <coughs> the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for <coughs> the tent of meeting and for the altar. <coughs> so the altar here is mentioned separately. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute for you forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. <clears throat> so the purpose is atonement of sin. And so this word kippur, right, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, <clears throat> means to cover. So the idea is focused more on the covering of sin than it is dealing with the root of the sin in this moment. And so that will come, the dealing with the root um, here, it's more about the covering, Yom Kippur. And so we're told the day, it's the 10th day of the seventh month. We're told to do no work. And this is the only yearly moed called a Shabbat Shabbaton. And so only the weekly Sabbath and Yom Kippur, and also the seventh year Shemitah, rest, that seventh year, these three are called Shabbat Shabbaton. It's not clear what this doubling of the word means, but usually what the doubling means is it places emphasis on it. And so some translate Shabbat Shabbaton as a Sabbath of complete rest. And so beyond these commandments, the high priest is to make atonement. And that means that the nation has to do whatever it takes to support him in getting ready for this big day. The nation itself also is responsible for providing the two goats used in the ceremony for their atonement, right? These, if it's going to be atonement on their behalf, the goats have to come from the people. And so they have that part to play and, um, and the, the giving of the goats. And recall that one of these goats receives the confession of the sins of the people. The hand is laid on the head and... Um, and so in that way, the sins are placed upon the goat, and that goat is sent out into the wilderness, bearing the sins away, right? The sins of the people. Of course, 
we know that this goat is a picture of Yeshua, our Messiah. And we are, are also told to humble ourselves or to afflict our souls, our nefesh. By Jewish tradition, this afflicting of one's soul has been understood to be refraining from coddling the body with comforts, including food. So there are traditional things to be refrained of on that day, but the general idea is don't coddle yourself. You have all the rest of the year to coddle yourself. Don't coddle yourself on Yom Kippur. It's not, it's not about you. It's not about your physical pleasures and about your comfort on Yom Kippur. So moving on to a few Yom Kippur traditions. Anciently, Yom Kippur was also one of two days in the calendar when the young maidens would dress in white and go out and dance and, and find a suitor. So it was a matchmaking day, which seems maybe a bit odd to us now to do that on Yom Kippur, but that was anciently what they found the day to be suitable for. And so anciently Yom Kippur was called one of the two most joyous days of the year, along with the other matchmaking day, which was not that long ago in the calendar, Tuba Av, the um, the full moon of the previous month of of Elul, and so Yom Kippur is also regarded as the day that Moses came down the mountain the last time with the second set of tablets that are not broken. This is a a tradition that he came to, he comes down on Yom Kippur with those second tablets, but the tradition is based on scripture. The rabbi see Moses is uh, taking three 40-day trips up and down Mount Sinai. So the first of these begins on the sixth day of the third month, which is Shavuot. And so counting forward 40, 40, 40 from, from that day in the third month, with a few days added in between for Moses to come down, you know, and go up. Um, that brings us exactly to Yom Kippur and Moses' last descent of the mountain with the new tablets in hand. Well, lastly here, Let's say a few words about the Haftarah reading for Yom Kippur afternoon, the book of Jonah. What does Jonah have to do with Yom Kippur? Well, Jonah has themes of repentance and of God's reversal of judgment. Jonah repents, Nineveh repents, and God relents in both cases, really, we could say. I I mean, he could have let the whale digest him, I guess, but he didn't. And he reverses the decree against Nineveh. And so... It's also important that there is this evangelical element to Jonah with Israel taking the word of truth to the nations, right? Jonah, a prophet from Israel, taking the word to the nations and the nations receiving it and changing, right? Doing repentance. And so the light going out from Israel to the nations is an important element of the second half of the yearly journey that begins at Rosh Hashanah. This whole second journey in the year has as a key, um, a key theme, Israel taking the light to the nations. And here we have this concept uh, traditionally through the book of Jonah. Well, let me add one <clears throat> last important point here. Nineveh's repentance eventually faded. And before long, the Assyrians attacked and carried away the 10 northern tribes, right? Nineveh is an Assyrian city and the capital even, I believe. And God knew that that their repentance would change. Um, He knew that going in. 
So surely it was even God who orchestrated them swooping in and taking the ten tribes. But if Nineveh's change wasn't going to last, you know, why did God relent in the days of Jonah? Rabbi Trugman says that God pays attention to what we are expressing to him in the moment. Let the future be what it is. And so right now, we focus our hearts and minds. Um, we focus our, our hearts and minds toward him in this moment. And God pays attention to that. And so here's what I mean with this discussion. I think this is an important point that Rabbi Trugman brings out. He says that a voice can come in in the 10 days that says, what are you doing repenting? Do you think in the future that you're going to maintain all of this? Who are you fooling? You've tried and failed many times. And um, But says Rabbi Tregman, the story of Jonah comes along to say, God accepts our repentance in the moment. We need to follow up, of course, with changes in our lives. But today we focus on today. Don't listen to that voice. If everyone listened to that voice, no one would repent right? Because that voice comes to everyone. So God accepted Nineveh's repentance in the moment, even though he could see what was coming later in the future. (coughs) And he relented from the decree against Nineveh, right? Uh, Let's focus on today and put our energies into this repentance on this day of atonement. So with that review of the basics of the day, let's move on to some further important review. And so these teachings all build on each other. We've had almost a year of them now. And um, particularly when that's the case, when it's a building type of curriculum, you could say, a decent teacher will review often. And a good student will actively engage with each review and even see if he or she can repeat it without the help of the teacher. And so I encourage you to do that. See if you can Afterwards, repeat all of these review points. And um, better yet, see if you can teach it to someone. Because if you can teach it to someone, that really solidifies it in your own mind. And so what we're building here, it's not a small thing. It's a structure for understanding the whole Bible and all of creation. It goes far, far beyond the calendar. It's a study, and it goes far, far beyond the Torah portions. It's a study of salvation, and salvation is Yeshua, the one through whom everything is created. So it all bears his mark, this mark of salvation, salvation of God. Yeshua is the key for unlocking the hidden mysteries of God. So I'm going to pour out a bunch of detail here for the next quite a few minutes. It will all be in the notes posted below the video, and it's all in previous teachings too, but the notes... might be the best way to absorb this review by looking at it and seeing it maybe as an outline a bit. So let's start with a quick overall calendar review. The sages associate Passover with birth. We find all kinds of birth imagery in the story of the Exodus, where we see one nation growing inside another until Egypt pushes Israel out. The baby learns to walk walk with the father who has just rescued them out of Egypt. Um, during the counting of the Omer. And that's actually when we see in the narrative Israel uh, marching on its way to Mount Sinai and learning how to abide by its first commandments as a nation. 
Shavuot in the third month, right? They get to that mountain and it's just about Shavuot. That's likened to a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah, you know, a beginning of adolescence, the receiving of the Torah when the young person becomes personally responsible to the covenant with God and the Torah. Right, so we're tracking this human development as we're going through the calendar. Shavuot is also like an engagement ceremony, becoming engaged to God. And so we're old enough at that point to say yes or no, but we aren't quite mature enough for the completion of the marriage yet. What follows in the calendar is the hot, dry summer, including the three weeks of mourning, and that includes Tishbaav. It's a period of struggle with the Torah, stumbling, and the result is God turning his face away as he destroys his own temple. Well, moving forward a bit, the sixth month, um, which follows the month of Av and Tishba Av, that's the month of Elul, that's a month of Shuvah, repentance, return, and that repentance continues into the first 10 days of Tishrei. So Elul and Tishrei are kind of connected together that way through this theme of repentance and a 40-day complete cycle of repentance. 30 days in Elul, the first 10 days of Tishrei. Well, that seventh month of Tishrei, which we are in now, which begins with Rosh Hashanah, it's about renewal of relationship. But more than renewal of the relationship that has been severed in the summer, Tishrei is a time for a great deepening of that relationship so that it's even stronger than when we started. And so at this point, we've reached adulthood. And so it's a time for the the consummation of the marriage. In the month of Tishrei, God specially provides the ability for opposites to unite. Right? We looked at that when we looked at the month of Tishrei. And so it's He's especially saying how you can grow in this month is echad. I'm giving you the ability, the energy to become echad, and particularly with him in this month. And this uniting results in fruitfulness. So it is that we not only have the intimacy of the sukkah in Tishrei, but we also have the beginning of a pregnancy too. And it will be our task as, as the bride to be faithful through the journey of the dark side of the year, faithful to form a body for the spiritual seed given to us and faithful to bring forth that body through much pain and trial. And so that's looking to the end of the calendar and Purim and that whole testing. Well, beyond uh, this human development picture that we have sort of laid on top of the calendar, We've also, in recent teachings, emphasized two journeys in the year. One we described as the walk in the light. And um, from the first month through the seventh month, those seven months. And the second journey described as the walk in the darkness, which overlaps, also begins in the seventh month, while that second one is still ending and goes around the calendar, continues forward to once again include the first month. And so the two journeys overlap in the first and the seventh months, and that gives us two seven-month journeys in the year. Well, the first journey is the journey of youth, and that's associated with a lesser degree of free will, right? Child doesn't have a lot of free will. 
And it's also associated with the Mosaic Covenant, which comes right there at that uh, third month. And the great fruit of that first journey is repentance. Repentance is the great harvest that we're getting at the end of the first journey. Well, the second journey is the journey of maturity. It begins with a finalization of the marriage, as we just said, the marriage to God in the seventh month, and is associated with the new covenant and with much free will, right? The free will of an adult. And, and so we talk about the bride stepping up in that second journey to bring a sacrificial offering of herself, really, uh, but from her own heart of love for God and not simply to do what she is commanded to do, but to bring from her own heart a free will offering to God. And so God left this second journey, the bulk of it, um, this whole winter part of the journey, he left it dark, right? In terms of not giving us revealed Moedim in that whole section of the calendar. And so that gives the bride the chance to step up and to bring forth from her own heart. And what she has brought forth in terms of Moedim is Hanukkah and Purim. And so, to be honest with you, God kind of hid these energies and these times for us to find and of our own free will to come up with the traditions around those moments. And so, in the first journey, we receive the light. And in the second journey, we walk out that light in our own unique situations and we become the light in the darkness. Well, with that overview, um, with that overall review of the basic framework of the year, um, out of the way, let's do one more review of the smaller framework of just Tishrei here, the Tishrei Moedim, the seventh month. Rosh Hashanah is focused on reconnecting to God, as we said, after a period of disconnection. It's a day for crowning God king once again. It's also a day for hearing the shofar's call to completion of this 40-day period of repentance of Shuvah. Rosh Hashanah is marked by our expression of our free will. In a way, God pushes us to reach within for what to do on Rosh Hashanah because he gives us so little specific direction for what we're supposed to do on that day. Just rest from work and make a big noise, make a, a clamor, which we understand to be the blowing of the shofar. Rosh Hashanah is unique in that it occurs on a new moon when there's very little light, maybe just the barest sliver of a new moon beginning to grow. And so it's dark. And so we have, we've had to develop a tradition to fill in the gaps and bring God a cohesive gift from our hearts on that day, or that the Jewish people have. And so again, as the first day of the seventh month journey of maturity, Rosh Hashanah needs to reflect the bride stepping up to be the mature bride, right? That involves tradition and such. And so, in fact, as we look at the calendar, Rosh Hashanah is, in a way, our first chance to reach back up to God uh, from our own free will. God originally reaches down to us, right? He reaches to us first. He first reaches to us at Passover and again at Shavuot. But we have little free will at those times because we are young 
And God is so very big and so obvious, right, with the whole pyrotechnical show on Mount Sinai. He's just right in front of our faces. And that, in a way, that takes away our free will. Who's going to say no to God in that situation? Well, now that we are marking our point of adulthood in Tishrei, and God is taking a step back, you know, as the darkness grows, this is our first chance to reach back up to him and to say, we accept, we want you to be our God and we to be your people. And so we crown God king on Rosh Hashanah. Well, this reaching back to him gets the ball rolling for the other two great Tishrei Moedim, Yom Kippur and Sukkot. At Rosh Hashanah, God sees our desire to enter into the relationship with him of our own free will. And so he will act on this expression from our heart. But there's a problem to deal with first. It's a, it's a sin problem. The sin that has come between us since Shavuot. Right? Third month, Shavuot. Summer, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. And so you see, we aren't held responsible for sin until we agree to take on the Torah for ourselves, which we did in that third month at Shavuot. That is why our sin has such big consequences for us from that moment forward, um, resulting in the ninth of Av and the separation, right? We're not experiencing such a harsh separation from God before that moment because we haven't agreed to take on the Torah. And so this is why we're coming to this moment of dealing with sin in the calendar now. It has to follow some point after uh, Shavuot and the taking, the personal taking on of the Torah when we're held held personally responsible for our sin. So, but uh, here at Yom Kippur, God, he covers this problem through Yeshua Yeshua, and so that's the key. How does he, we've gotten the ball rolling at, at this point. How does God take, take the ball up and work with what we've expressed to him on Rosh Hashanah? It's through Yeshua. And so Yeshua takes his own blood into the heavenly holy of holies as an atonement for us, affecting the forgiveness of that sin. And so we read about Yeshua entering the, the heavenly holy of holies in Hebrews chapter 9. So again, it's a covering at this point, and the the covering is what is needed to reestablish the relationship. We need something that will help us get back together and reunited. But once you're back together, now you start working on the root of the sin. And, um, And so that rooting out and that cleansing follows. But, um, It's a cleansing of the vessel, we can say. And that's partly what's happening in the second journey of the year, um, this rooting out of the sin and the cleansing of the vessel. And so remember that the whole context for the holiday of Hanukkah, as winter is really setting in, the darkest day of the year there, is this cleansing of the temple, the cleansing of the vessel. It's about rooting out that sin. And so moving forward (coughs) to Sukkot, Right, We've gone through Rosh Hashanah, gets the ball rolling, we're reaching back to him, there's the sin problem, deal with the sin through Yeshua, and forward we go to Sukkot. Well, Sukkot is like <clears throat> the physical capstone on the three-step progression of Tishrei. Spirit at Rosh Hashanah, soul at Yom Kippur, body at Sukkot. 
And so we saw this same kind of spirit, soul, body uh, seed, really, in Nisan with Pesach, Matzah, and first fruits. And there's a reflection across the calendar here. We're going to see the same three-part seed, spirit, soul, and body. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. Sukkot is the moed we particularly associate with Yeshua's incarnation, when Yeshua gets a body, his birth at Bethlehem. God accepts, right, he tabernacled among us, tabernacles, tents, Sukkot. God accepts our reaching up to him by covering our sin again through Yeshua at Yom Kippur and then sending Yeshua to not only be a king in the flesh, but also a husband. The king arrives in wedding clothes. Well, that was a lot, but I, I think it's appropriate that as we draw near to the end of the calendar, we have an overall picture recorded somewhere to go back to. And let's move forward now to, um, after all that review, to the exhilarating topic of circumcision, um, which is an important topic. Um, it's an important theme in Scripture from the beginning to the end. You know, it's, it's wonderful when you've seen something in the Word and you've become convinced of it, but you don't quite have clarity. And then God brings along someone with authority who can bring the clarity. I just love that. You know, you've been working on something. Maybe it works like this, I think. You know, and then God just gives you the answer and, or confirms or maybe rejects that. Um, <clears throat> and so that's been my recent experience with this topic of circumcision that, believe it or not, is very connected to Yom Kippur. And so let's start there. Why should circumcision be a topic of discussion here at Yom Kippur? And so as we dig into that question, we need to back up a couple of steps. First, let's recognize that the yearly calendar contains the entire picture of salvation, the entire picture of development. It's a circle that takes us through a whole growth cycle, which is a miniature picture of a whole lifetime. It begins with birth in the spring and moves forward from there. So, in fact, it's not just the year, but every part of creation has the whole picture in it, in its own way. An atom has particles orbiting the nucleus like the solar system has planets orbiting the sun, right? We look with our microscope, we see the same thing that we see with our telescopes. So everywhere we look, we see that same picture of salvation. So as we think about the year, we need to know that we should be able to see every aspect of salvation in the year. Each piece has to be there, and it has to be there in the right order, the same order that we see everywhere else in the creation. And so an important part of this whole salvation journey is centered on covenants, God establishes his relationship with humanity through covenants. How am I going to relate to you? What, um, what are the details and the stipulations of how we relate to each other? That happens through covenant. And so our whole topic here with this study is, this spiritual season study, is our development of our relationship with God and how that changes and how we grow in our relationship throughout the year, and how the Torah portions reflect that. And so we've been tracking the development of our relationship with him throughout the entire year. So covenants that define and grow that relationship are central to this study, right? So there is a whole study that can be done just with the covenants, 
just with the covenants and how they overlap on the calendar. And so we want to find the connections uh, between each of these covenants uh, just a little bit now and the calendar. And so it would be easy to just map the covenants chronologically onto the calendar. We have the Abrahamic covenant that maps to Passover, the Mosaic covenant that maps to, it's the second big one, that uh, we could align with Shavuot. And then we can talk about the, the New Covenant. We could also talk about the Davidic Covenant. Those kind of overlap here in the fall. So Abrahamic, Passover, Mosaic, Shavuot, and the New Covenant in the fall. Well, it, that would be simple enough. It has its own justification because that's the chronological order that those covenants come in world history and in the Torah. But we can make some more connections here, just in case that doesn't convince you. Uh, First, let me say that we know um, Yeshua mentions the new covenant at his last Seder when he raises the cup after the meal so that um, it would seem to connect the new covenant to to Passover. But the truth is, everything is there at Passover. (laughs) Everything comes back to Passover in, in a in a, even a more fundamental way. The, the truth is that Yeshua's crucifixion is outside of time, before time, foundational to the universe. And so although we see that event happening at Passover, it's going to express itself all throughout the calendar in different ways. And so although we see Yeshua mentioning the new covenant at Passover, we're looking for when that covenant is, is first of all needed in the calendar and when it's really coming into play with what else we know about the development process and growing up and messing up and um, and um, the new covenant doesn't really have that kind of depth of expression at the birth moment. That is not where it's at. And so... In fact, everything seems to point to the fall for the beginning of this deeper engagement that is the new covenant. It's a deeper engagement. That's not going to be a birth moment thing. That's going to be somewhere else. It's going to be the fall where this deeper engagement of the new covenant. So listen to what Matthew records um, Yeshua saying with that third cup at his last Seder because it it has a clue that leads us back to Tishrei. It says, and he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Well, did you catch that Yeshua mentions forgiveness of sins here in connection to the new covenant? It's clearly called, by the way, the New Covenant, not here. Here it just says uh, blood of um, the covenant. But in Luke, it it says the New Covenant. And so we know that's the covenant that's in mind here. But in Matthew, Yeshua is connecting forgiveness of sins to the New Covenant. A, A deep kind of forgiveness of sins. And what day in the calendar do we associate with forgiveness of sin? Well, that's Yom Kippur. So here we have a detail that's leading us not only to the fall, but exactly to Yom Kippur. Um, 
And as I, as I just mentioned, forget, forgiveness of sins doesn't really come into play until after we accept the Torah personally, becoming personally responsible to the Torah, right? At Shavuot in the third month. And our forgiveness of sin is going to be needed at some point beyond that um, after we're held responsible to the Torah. And so um, it's interesting, by the way, that Yeshua goes out of his way to say all of you when he um, when he's speaking out this uh, over the third cup, this mention of forgiveness of sins, because Drink it, all of you. You know, he doesn't have to add those words. But I think what he's doing there, just by way of an aside, is he's including Judas in this moment of forgiveness of sins. And um, he's extending that forgiveness to Judas, who betrays him, who's about to betray him. Um, But we won't go down that bunny trail. But forgiveness is for all. It's for all. Now, As we continue looking for connections between Tishrei and the New Covenant, let me repeat that uh, Moses comes down the mountain with the second set of tablets on Yom Kippur. So again, another detail that's leading us not only to the fall, Moedim, but to Yom Kippur in particular. So the second set of tablets are emblematic of the covenant that is not broken. As we read in uh, Jeremiah 31, we're talking about the new covenant. That's the covenant that's not broken. It says there, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a, a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And so the second set of tablets are not broken, and this is like the new covenant that will not be broken. We have other clues as well, leading us to look for the new covenant at Tishrei and Yom Kippur, including what's happening with this beginning of the darkness that's ruling as we cross the fall equinox at Rosh Hashanah. This entering the darkness is the context for Yeshua's coming and his ministry, and it is Yeshua who is the mediator of the new covenant. Moses mediates the Mosaic covenant. Yeshua mediates the new covenant, and he's all about coming into the darkness. Uh, And so John says of Yeshua that he is the light that shines in the darkness. And so this idea that the new covenant is connected to the fall feast, it's a very important one. What, What does it mean? Well, Um, God has just taken us through a time of stumbling with the Torah and a time of inward introspection and repentance. He has shown us a lacking within. Through our repentance, we let him know that we see the lack. And that's the open door then for God to pour out his grace on us. Tishrei is connected not only to God's judgment, but also to God's mercy, his grace, his compassion. And this grace in Tishrei is understood by the rabbis to be a divine response to our repentance, right? So there's a whole sequence that's leading to the new covenant here, this pouring out of grace, this lavishing on grace in us. So what does he do to pour out his compassion? He makes us a new covenant. He makes a new covenant with us 
wherein the Torah is written inwardly on our hearts. It's the same Torah, different location, and that makes all the difference for us. Torah on the heart not only engages our mind in a more grounded way, but it also engages our emotions, leading to a great energy for action. Right? This is the depth of what's happening here. If you can engage the heart and get those emotions on board, nothing's going to stop you from following through with the action. So we have to be passionate about with our Torah walk. Right? Passion is such a great source of energy for us. And the engagement of action in our lower body is is through the emotions. That's the doorway. We have to step through there. And so it's one thing to understand up here and to, to know what we're supposed to do and to do that from duty. But it's something else when we see through experience of life and death and and we see the way that's life. We see the way that's death. And he grows within us a love for himself and for others. And he begins unlocking the deeper mysteries of the Torah. And the way of life and truth and love begins to take over our minds and our whole being, our emotions. Uh, That's a very different experience of walking with him, right? That's the new covenant, the empowered walk. And it's what the bride needs to be faithful to her groom. And so this is what he's pouring out on us after that separation, after that uh, shuva, repentance. He's okay, I'm going to pour my grace out on you. And this is what it's going to look like. Okay, so we're being pointed to Yom Kippur as being a critical moment in the calendar connected to the new covenant. And we're... Um, Coming back around finally to the circumcision question, where we see a covenant coming into force, we also see the sign of the covenant. Maybe the most prominent sign of covenant given in the Torah is circumcision. Circumcision is given to Abraham and his descendants. It's very clear to say that over and over, and and your seed. Uh, And his descendants, the, the sign of being in covenant with God, in that relationship with God, that special relationship. I am your God, you are my people, my special people. Well, if that's the case, then that sign is already taken. We we can't we don't have circumcision to be the sign of the new covenant. Well, not exactly. The Bible mentions several kinds of circumcision, and the two most prominent are the circumcision in the flesh of a baby boy on the eighth day, and then there is the circumcision of the heart. Circumcision of the heart is a perfect fit, in fact, as the sign of the new covenant, because the new covenant is primarily spiritual. It is the writing of the Torah inwardly on the heart. That's not firstly an external physical thing. It's an inward and spiritual thing. And the circumcision of the heart is likewise spiritual. Paul brings out some of these ideas in Romans 2, and he uses that word spiritual here. And so, what does it mean, though, that someone has a circumcised heart? How, how can we recognize that as a sign of the new covenant? Well, ultimately, it means that there is nothing inhibiting the flow of love out of a person's heart. If the Torah is written on the heart, and the core of the Torah is love for God and others, that means 
Love is written on the heart, and a circumcised heart means that there is no flesh blockage to keep that love from flowing outward to the world around. So if you come across a stranger, sometimes you can just bump into them in the store and you know a stranger. Um, even with that little contact, you sense the love flowing through him or her. That's someone who has a circumcised heart that allows the Torah on the heart to flow outward. That's the sign of a person in the new covenant. So we can recognize that. Okay, so this is all just to say that if we're dealing with a kind of engaging of the new covenant here at Yom Kippur, then we should be looking for a circumcision of the heart here too. All this background brings me to a recent teaching I heard from Rabbi Trugman in which he repeats a teaching from Rabbi Yitzhak Ginsberg that links different types of circumcision to different points on the calendar. Now, for me, that kind of teaching is like gold, especially coming from Rabbi Ginsberg, who is one of the most respected living rabbis, particularly in this area of making these kinds of deeper connections. And so in this case, the, he's connecting together the several kinds of circumcision with different points in the calendar, which is just mind-blowing that someone would even try to do that, really. So let me just say a couple notes about Rabbi Ginsburg. According to Wikipedia, anyway, he was born in St. Louis. So he's an American and was a child prodigy in both music and math. How about that? How would you like to have a whiz kid run, running circles around everyone in both music and math, right? Both sides of the brain there. He ended up, by, by the way, uh, spending a portion of his childhood in Cleveland, Ohio, until the age of 14. Now, Rabbi Trugman, that was Rabbi um, Ginsburg, who is really... He's a big rabbi today. Um, rabbi Trugman is a close student of Rabbi Ginsburg and has helped to write a lot of books for Rabbi Ginsburg. And, um, <clears throat> or at least I know he's written some for Rabbi Ginsburg. And interestingly, Rabbi Trugman, there must be something about Ohio because um, Rabbi Trugman grew up in Cleveland. And um, I don't think the two would have known each other when they lived in Ohio, but um, apparently um, he not only grew up in Ohio, Rabbi Trugman did, but he went to Cleveland State and Ohio State, um, although he has lived now in Israel for many, many years um, on the Karlbach Moshav, right? The, um, he helped to found that Moshav. Well, and so here is Rabbi Ginsburg's teaching as it came through Rabbi Trugman. I don't know that this teaching is out there uh, other than through his students, but, um, and, or if it's in English, if it is, but I would love to find it someday. But we've, this is Rabbi Ginsburg, Ginsburg's teaching. He says we find four types of circumcision in Scripture. Um, at least this is my impression of it. If I get some details wrong here, don't blame Rabbi Ginsburg, <laughs> okay? coming through someone, and now it's coming through another person, me. So um, we have circumcision of the reproductive organ, circumcision of the lips, and of the ears, and of the heart. And so once again, we have circumcision of the reproductive organ, of the lips, of the ears, lips, ears, and of the heart. And Rabbi Trugman connects... Um, 
uh, giving Rabbi Ginsburg's teaching, he connects three of these two specific dates in the calendar. And each of these dates in the calendar is an eighth day. Remember, circumcision is to happen on the eighth day. And so for a baby boy, the date is based on his birthday, of course. So that's going to be different uh, throughout the year. He's circumcised on the eighth day of his life. For the ears, Rabbi Ginsburg connects circumcision of the ears to Shemini Atzeret, the eighth day of Sukkot and the end of the revealed holiday cycle. So remember that the ears are about integration, bringing from the left and the right and synthesizing that into meaning. And uh, the idea here is that since Shemini Etzeret is the last day of the procession of the revealed Moedim, it is the day of final integration. That last day contains the whole within it, they say. That last moment does. And that's the same for a person who is passing away. That last day and that last moment somehow contains the whole within it. And so... um, so Shemini Etzeret contains the whole service that we've done uh, since Rosh Hashanah, is what uh, Rabbi Trugman says here. And this integration has to do with the ears, circumcision of the ears on Shemini Etzeret. Rabbi Ginsburg continues um, by connecting circumcision of the lips to the eight days of Hanukkah. How about that? And so one point he brings forward here in connecting the lips to Hanukkah is that the rabbis have ordained that the full Hallel, those six psalms in a row, um, be recited every day of Hanukkah. And that's rare in the calendar. The full Hallel, all six psalms, is done only a few other occasions. The purpose of Reciting the Hallel is to praise God, right? To praise him with the mouth and thus the lips. And so we have this, these lips, uh, this praising of God attached to Hanukkah in a, in a rare way, the full Hallel, circumcision of the lips. Well, finally, we come to the heart. Rabbi Ginsburg connects circumcision of the heart to Yom Kippur. How about that? The connection to the number eight here, is that Yom Kippur is the eighth day after the second day of Rosh Hashanah, right? It's, this, it's two days in Israel, like it is around the world, uh, unusually for Rosh Hashanah. And so, fast forward to the eighth day from that point, we have Yom Kippur. And here, Rabbi Ginsburg reminds us that we're doing this motion. I don't want to smack the microphone here, but we're hitting our hearts on... Yom Kippur, while we're going through this long list of sins and asking for forgiveness and pardon. And so Rabbi Ginsburg connects circumcision of the heart to Yom Kippur and this action on Yom Kippur of hitting the heart. Well, is he right? Uh, what I can say is that there are a lot of reasons this teaching makes sense. So first, we have already gone into detail about our own connecting of heart circumcision to Yom Kippur. The work of circumcision of the heart is really foundational to the whole second journey in the year, the journey of maturity. When we do shuva and reach up to God, he answers by pouring out his grace on us. And here that grace takes the form of the writing of the Torah on the heart 
the heart circumcision enables that Torah to flow outward from the heart. What good is it to write the Torah on the heart if it's trapped in there because of the flesh blockage over the heart? But, um, and so it's not only a sign of the covenant, it's helping um, the new behavior to pour forth from us. Um, but the, um, the other circumcisions that he connects to the calendar, they make sense too with some deeper knowledge of the calendar. The idea of circumcision of the ears on the eighth day of Sukkot, it's perfect there really because Yeshua comes, right? He tabernacles among us, Sukkot. And he comes speaking words, words of truth. And first we have to hear him. We need the flesh covering removed from our ears in order to hear him as he shepherds us through the darkness. And what we see Yeshua doing in the Gospel of John on Shemini Atzeret is that he divides the people, right? It's like a scalpel, his words. And some of them say, you know, um, some of them side with him and they say, you know, this is, the, this is the word of God. And then others say he has a demon. And we read about this in John chapter 10, uh, what's happening, what Yeshua is doing on Shemini Etzeret. But it has to do with the ears and it has to do with separating. And then we come to circumcision of um, the lips at Hanukkah. Again, this fits with the overall pattern of the year. Hanukkah marks a point when we have cleaned up our own vessel, right? Like the Jews cleaned up the, the temple, uh, that first Hanukkah. And at that point, we can start going out, taking our light out into the gloom. It starts as a little point of light placed in the window on the first night of Hanukkah, and it grows and it grows each night. So there is an evangelical element to Hanukkah. And that's why circumcision of the lips fits so well there at Hanukkah. As we sow the seed of the gospel, we need a purified mouth, lips that are not hindered by the blockage of the flesh. But um, coming back to heart circumcision for one last point here, let me complicate it a little bit uh, by saying that Rabbi Trugman mentions another calendar connection to heart circumcision, circumcision that I want to bring out as a final point here today because it's fascinating for one thing, but it's all, it also helps us to be even more specific about the process of heart circumcision and, and the work of the bride stepping up in this season. So in addition to this hitting of the heart at Yom Kippur and Rabbi Ginsburg's connecting, connecting that to heart circumcision on that day, Rabbi Trugman talks about a connection between heart circumcision and the whole month of Elul, the sixth month. Now, this sixth month is connected to the seventh month especially through this 40-day period of repentance. Um, but there's an actual verse that they pull out that connects God circumcising our hearts to the month of Elul. And it's a verse that we read in Parsha Nitzavim, which we just recently read. And it's Deuteronomy 30. And, and in that chapter it says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, 
so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Circumcision. We're reading about it in Nitzavim. God does the circumcision. What's the Elul connection? Well, fascinatingly, this verse is one of those that has the letters uh, that spell Elul as an acronym using the first letters of words in the verse. And so you may have heard the famous Ani Ladodi Vadodi Li as an acronym for Elul, but there are others, including this verse that talks about God circumcising the heart. And so the acronym here doesn't start with the first word of the verse, but it starts with the fourth word. Starting from that fourth word, the first letters of the word spell are, are, are the letters Aleph, Lamed, Vav, and Lamed, which spells Elul. And so this is well known and accepted as a verse connected to Elul, this verse about God circumcising the heart. Well, why would this verse be picked out? You know, I'm sure that that, that happens, you know, quite a few times in Scripture. Um, why is that particularly appropriate for Elul? Well, I think it's because it's the month of Shuvah. And what cuts into the heart more than Shuvah, right? More than repentance. But we can ask, well, which one is it then? Is it the heart circumcision? You know, is it that at Yom Kippur, as we've just been saying, and as, as, as Rabbi Ginsburg says, or is it Elul, this whole month of Elul, as this verse is suggesting with this acronym? Well, as always, you know the answer is both. Heart circumcision occurs over time and in stages. And remember that Elul, as I mentioned before, it's all connected. There's a whole process that's happening with the 40 days of repentance. And 40 is... Um, it's the number of that of the process of transformation. Um, Forty is connected to being transformed. You, Grant said recently the uh, the caterpillar turns into the butterfly. That's what the number forty is about. And so this heart work in the heart and this process in this new covenant, um, it's like it's being given forty days to happen here. And the crown on top of all of that is Yom Kippur. But recall that heart circumcision, we can get a little more specific here, has two aspects. And so at times, Scripture says we are told that God circumcises the heart. It's God who circumcises the heart. And then other places uh, or elsewhere in Scripture where we are commanded to circumcise our own hearts. And so let me posit the idea that according to the verse, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring First, God does an act of circumcision in the sixth month, wherein he is giving us the gift of repentance. He is the prime mover still in this first half of the year. It's the light from above. It's the arousal from above. And so he is the prime mover in our early repentance in the sixth month. Repentance is a gift. And, um, and so he's opening us up to repentance. And then as the journey of maturity begins in the month of Tishrei, with the 10 days, now we've, we've, got, we've come into this other phase called arousal from below when the bride's stepping up 
We have 10 more days of this repentance. And he says, now you're on your own. This is your time to step up and be the bride. And it begins here with these 10 days of repentance. And so there, there we are, you know, circumcising our own hearts through repentance in the 10 days. And there we are in the pews, hitting our hearts on Yom Kippur. And so in truth, maybe we don't want to put too much on ourselves, circumcising our our own hearts. Still, God gives us a lot of help even there. Um, And so what we are doing down here is just a reflection of what Yeshua is doing on Yom Kippur. We don't want to steal any of Yeshua's thunder. It's all about him. It's not really about us circumcising our own hearts. We're commanded to do that. But who is the one who leads us in that? And it's, it's no one other than Yeshua. The real action on this day is centered on Yeshua in the heavenly holy of holies. And what we're, and he's presenting his blood, right? Blood, the, this blood that, that we can associate with circumcision of the heart, right? That spear that pierces his side. What we're doing um, below is a reflection of that, of what he is doing above. And... Um, In terms of humanity stepping up, Yeshua is one of us. He is one of us. God says, now you do it. And and Yeshua doing it, he is our head, right? And um, he's the son of God, but he is also a man like us. And so we we do this through him. And um, he is our leader and he is our example. And so... It is through him and with his example that we finish the heart circumcision by circumcising our own hearts. And um, just as God is taking a step back and the darkness grows and the bride is given the chance to step up to be the bride. All a theory. I'll say that. So speaking of uh, following Yeshua's example on Yom Kippur, it's fascinating that in temple time, so here let's focus in on how the people are, are focusing in on the high priest. That's a picture for us of following Yeshua. So the people were not allowed to um, gather closely and observe um, what they could. Um, the, the people were not allowed to go right along with the high priest, but they were allowed to get as close as they could, right, to this outer courtyard area and observe the high priest movement. I find this fascinating that those in charge and the high priest will let the people come right to the doorway and watch. You know, uh, probably nervous enough. I don't need all these other people watching, you know. And so, but they did allow that, and I love that. And so um, they would have been eagerly watching from their vantage point, and... Um, and Rabbi Trugman says it's, it's virtually like they're following in the high priest's footsteps to the point that when they would hear him uttering the holy name, they would fall down on their knees, right? They can hear, they can hear the holiest name and they fall down on their faces. And when the high priest would disappear into the temple proper, you know, they had to be there just, oh, Lord, bless him in there. And... Um, just fervently praying on his behalf. And it's just a beautiful picture for us of how we are to follow in the footsteps of the true high priest who is above the earthly high priest, Yeshua, our Messiah. Well, truly the whole picture 
that begins to emerge here, it's just breathtaking. But it's not just cute or curious, not just some facts that we're learning here. Um, what, what, what we're learning here, it's, it's not just about the calendar either. And it's not just about the Torah portion. It is the overall pattern of salvation. It touches everything. There's literally no page of scripture where these understandings of the deeper structure aren't present. The foundation beneath is the foundation everywhere and everywhere we look. And so, as God has led me on this study, my eyes have just been popping out of my head almost every time I pick up the Bible. Truly, in these darkening days, God is lifting a veil. He's revealing secrets long hidden. And we are so privileged to be living in these times and all the glory to him. Well, that's all for today. Thank you once again for listening. May God bless us on this Yom Kippur with an attitude of seriousness and reverence, but with joy also down deep inside, knowing that as Yom, at Yom Kippur we focus on Yeshua's blood that covers our sins. May God grant us the ability to repent deeply. May he bless us to stand truly as one, one people before him. May he bless <clears throat> May he bless us all with a favorable judgment rooted in the work of his son. And may we rise up to be the people he has made us to be. Shalom.